Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. This is Season 5, Episode 24. We're talking about what is heaven like today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to the end of the chapter. For those of you who've been following along throughout the entire journey through 1 Corinthians, we've almost reached the end. We have uh, two more episodes to go on chapter 16, and then I'm going to take a week off and we'll begin a new season, season six on the Gospel of Luke. So please be looking for that and make sure that you sign on, encourage other people to join you in listening to this podcast. It's a great time for new folks to jump in. I'm really going to try and focus the podcast for those who are maybe new to the faith, and this might be their first experience in reading or understanding or trying to understand uh, what Jesus is all about through the Gospel of Luke, which is just a great, great book to do that, filled with lots of parables and Jesus' teachings and personal stories. It's going to be a fascinating uh, journey through that Gospel, so I really look forward to that. So, but for today, I'm going to be reading a long passage from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58, and it's on the very important topic of what happens when we die. Let's listen in. The Apostle Paul writes, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. 
Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Where will you be one minute after you die? That's a heavy question. It's a question that has perplexed people since the dawn of time. Over 3,000 years ago, the biblical author Job put it this way, Job 14, 14. If a man dies, will he live again? The question is, what happens next? And it's not just in the Bible. Every human being on planet Earth asks that question at some point in life. All cultures have had a fascination with death and what lies beyond. Think of the pharaohs of ancient Egypt, buried with all their gold and wealth and even their unfortunate servants to go with them to the afterlife. The quest to discover what happens next is true in all cultures, wondering what's beyond the grave. This universal quest even spawned a new science in the mid-1900s, thanatology, the study of the process of dying, and they're made most famous by the works of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. You may have heard of her or read her books. And that movement sparked a great interest in understanding grief and training people to help those in grief, which is good. But she could never really answer the question, what is beyond? This summer, I read a fascinating book by a medical doctor and researcher, Dr. Bruce Grayson, called After. A doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. It was just such a fascinating look at clinical near-death experiences of people from a variety of belief systems and cultures, and his attempts to understand what happens at the moment of death. It was just so interesting. But as insightful as Dr. Grayson is, he still couldn't answer the questions about what happens after death, what's next. He could only chronicle the process of dying and the common experiences people have in dying. Lots of documentation about near-death experiences now of going toward a light, but is it God or the basic neurological reaction in the brain as it begins to shut down. Either way, he shows there is a longing for eternity in our hearts, but he can't answer with any certainty what happens after death. So the question about what's next is all too often answered with silence or simplistic platitudes and superstition. How can we know anything about what lies beyond? How do we get reliable information? Shakespeare's Hamlet struggled with this as he contemplated his own mortality. He said that death is that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. We're all travelers, but death is a one-way trip. Think of all the effort you put into planning a two-week vacation with maps and guidebooks, and you learn some of the language, and you save money, you book flights, all for a two-week journey. Death is the longest journey. Are you prepared? How do you get prepared? Well, Hamlet was wrong in one thing. Someone has returned. One has returned. Jesus on Easter, he shattered death. His resurrection is the basis of belief in what happens next. Our assurance, our forerunner, is Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me 
will never die. It's John eleven twenty five. Easter continues. It doesn't stop. Christians are often called Easter people. Think of Jesus' promises to us like John 14, 19, where he says, Because I live, you shall also live. Philosophers, theologians, scientists, poets, they've never been there and come back, only Jesus. Eternal life is a core belief in the Christian faith. Even in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? but have eternal life. Know this, you are an eternal being. You are an eternal soul. You have a beginning, but no end. We live in a very small percentage of our lives on this little planet. Even if you live to be 100, that's very short compared to eternity. You, and we, let's face it, we can't really even fathom what that means. Eternity is not foremost in people's thinking. If you go back in time, 100, 150 years, when half the children died from disease and things like that, people were much more drawn to the idea of heaven, possibly because they suffered more acutely earlier in life. And now we live for the immediate, for the material. We expect to live longer and maybe somehow even cheat death. And you've probably seen the stories of people who want their brains frozen until some future time when science will defeat death and they can thaw out. Sorry, not going to happen. Or one guy I saw was going to download his personality into a computer, and I just want to say good luck with that. We've become experts at avoiding the topic. And so people use euphemisms that have been, you know, passed, that have been given to us, that people pass on, they expire, they depart, they breathe his last, he's gone to his eternal rest, he bought the farm, kicked the bucket, to name a few. We don't want to face it. You may remember Woody Allen's famous line, I want to achieve immortality by not dying. Well, death is a great equalizer. English poet John Donne wrote, Death comes equally to us all and makes us all equal when it comes. It is a universal experience and also an original one-of-a-kind experience for each and every person because everyone's death is unique. At some point, we'll all have to face it. Face it with the knowledge that we are eternal beings and face it with the hope of Jesus' promises. For a moment, let's look at what death is not. Death is not annihilation, that we totally seek to exist, that the material view of humanity, there's no soul, there's nothing eternal, and so when you die, you're just cosmic dust and it's over. That's really what the Sadducees believed in Jesus' day. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And there are plenty of, plenty of Sadducees around today, but they're sad, you see. That's an old seminary joke. Death is not reincarnation, going around and around in the circle until you get it right. No, it says in Hebrews 9.27, that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. You're also not a drop in the cosmic ocean like Hinduism and Buddhism teaches, there's, where there's no personal consciousness after death. You're just kind of swallowed up by merging with the energy of the universe. And so you lose your individual personality. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. When death is not soul sleep, some kind of holding zone or purgatory, there's nothing in Scripture about that. In death, we don't become angels. We're not up there playing harps on soft, fluffy clouds. Um... And quite frankly, a few people really like that idea anyway. But we tend to get our images of eternity more from Hollywood and not from Jesus. And myths and folklore 
are really designed to make people feel at ease or more comfortable, you know, as comfortable as possible. So there's no talk of judgment, no hell, it's all bliss. Because we are eternal beings, death is the transition from one form of life to another, a kind of life that is different from what we know now. Biblical writers have to use metaphors to try and describe what God has revealed to them. 1 Corinthians 2.9 said, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So in a sense, what heaven's like, it's something we can't, we can scarcely grasp with any certainty. This new life is tied more to a person than a place. Let me say that again. This new life, our belief in an afterlife, our belief in heaven, is really tied more to a person than a place. Remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus being crucified with him? And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. So first of all, it's not a somewhere, but primarily it's a someone. It's union with Christ. That's the most important thing to remember about what heaven is like. Christ is heaven. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. And so we go through death with Jesus. And when we do that, we go immediately into the presence of God. That was his promise to the thief on the cross. And that's his promise to you and me as we put our faith in him, that we will immediately go into the presence of God. Heaven is the place where God is. It's not necessarily a place in the sky. It's a different dimension from this created world. There's no use trying to determine its longitude or latitude. It's not natural, not measured in distance. It's a different dimension entirely. Uh, we don't really have the, the, the right kind of terms for it. Maybe science fiction could help us with that. But to say that God exists in a parallel universe that in a sense intersects with ours, a place prepared, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 12. And again, in John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. So it's a real place, but it's primarily a presence. It's being in God's presence and there experiencing the fullness of all creation. So be careful about kind of our anthropomorphic metaphors, that they're not just simply a projection of our best uh, or our desires or what we think would be perfect on earth. You know, as a hospital chaplain, I've often had the privilege of standing with families at the time of death for a loved one and waiting in that long vigil sometimes in the hospital for many hours until death finally comes. And it's so odd to me some of the things people will say, and it's often because they just don't know what to say, but because they don't have any real sure understanding of heaven, they'll say things like, well, Uncle Willie's up there fishing and catching the big ones every day. You know, or somebody's up there, you know, strumming their guitar, having a party. You know, I mean, so many of the things are just so sentimental and actually foolish. But they bring people, I don't know, a type of comfort because they don't know what else to think. And it's too painful to really think of, of anything else. In that place, we are changed, but we are all identifiable. That's what Paul is trying to say here in chapter 15, in that presence when we're with Jesus, we will be changed, but we will be identifiable. We will have a real body. 
Paul's trying to get at this, different kinds of flesh, different kinds of existence. And there's a debate about what that will be like, but Paul says it's kind of useless speculation because earthly bodies will dissolve. And we see that uh, in the cemeteries of uh, ancient times and in the fact that people's bodies decay and rot and they disappear. The Bible does not claim that the actual body laid in the grave will be the thing that is resurrected. Some are scattered elements all over the place. And in a sense, those scattered elements, I guess, get reassembled somehow. But, you know, you're talking about cells that have been gone into the ground, that have gone into food, that have been ingested by others. So it gets kind of complicated if you take that kind of worldview. For thousands of years, bodies were buried or burned and their ashes were scattered or their flesh dissolved into the earth and to the oceans. The body will dissolve and it re-enters the ecosystem of plants, insects, and animals. In the Middle Ages described the body in the grave eaten by insects and dissolved into the soil to fertilize the grass that is eaten by the cow who makes the milk that you drink at breakfast. And so whose elements are those or whose? Paul says this is a ridiculous thing to think about. In fact, we are not the same body we were three years ago. Your body regenerates cells. You get a whole new body every three to seven years. Did you know that? Your body is constantly changing. So you're still the same person you were as a child, but you're not containing the same elements you did. A 50-year-old person has worn out at least seven bodies. And I feel sometimes like I've done that all in like one generation. In some way, beyond our present understanding, Paul's telling us a new body will rise, change and fitted for a life that transcends this sphere, made ready for fellowship with God. And the characteristics of this new body are imperishable, covered with glory, filled with power, and spiritual. Verse 39, it says, We bear the likeness of the man from heaven, meaning Jesus. Christ's resurrection body is the pattern for what our resurrection body will be. It'll be real. It'll be touchable, sometimes recognizable, sometimes hidden. Remember, Jesus could pass through walls and transport from one place to another. And yet he would eat food to let people, let his disciples know that he wasn't just a disembodied spirit or a ghost or something like that. That he was had a real body that they could identify but it was different from his uh, pre-crucifixion body. It had, and it wasn't this perfect um, example of uh, a human body because he still held the scars in his hands and in his side and on his head. Recognizable, but in some ways hidden. Ben Franklin, who wasn't necessarily a really faithful follower of Jesus, at least he understood eternity from a Christian perspective. And if you want to know if America is a Christian nation, just look at somebody like uh, Ben Franklin, who operated from a Judeo-Christian worldview, but wasn't necessarily uh, very good at practicing his faith. Anyway, he ordered that the following epitaph be written on his tombstone. And I quote, The body of B. Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding. Lies here, food for worms, but the work shall not be lost, for it will be, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, 
revised and corrected by the author. To get that revised and corrected by the author, you will be a new and more elegant edition of yourself in the resurrection, revised and corrected by your author, God himself. In that heaven, filled with true community, new forms of relationship deeper than the intimacy of marriage will exist. There'll be music and joy and security, no pain, no suffering, no tears, just joy and creativity, new vistas of excitement and wonder. We may travel the stars, who knows? Challenges beyond our ability to conceive. Listen to this description of heaven from Revelation 21, starting with verse 18. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jasnith, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. Now that description is so far beyond us and any understanding. that We can only recognize them only as symbols of glory. Now think about streets paved with gold. Does that indicate opulence? Or does it show how God reverses the values of this world? That gold in heaven will be used like blacktop, like cement. It's not valuable at all. People drive their cars over it. Bigger than our imagination can go. That's the image of heaven that we have in the Bible. We enter the immensity of God's creativity and we participate in God's redeemed universe. And what's the timing of all this? That's the most difficult part. Not clear in scripture because God lives outside of our time. Time only exists in our physical universe and God is not contained by our universe. He's outside of it. He interacts with it, but he exists apart and separate from what he has created. So he exists outside of time. His vision of time is different than ours. It's like the story of the man who prayed, Lord, is it true that you will that with you a thousand years is like one minute? And God's voice came back saying, yes, that's true. And Lord, is it true that with you a million dollars is like a penny? And he said, yes, that's also true. And the man prayed, Lord, please give me a million dollars. And the voice answered, sure, in a minute. You see, the timing is not clear in Scripture, and we don't have time today to go over all the various views on that. They're not significant because the timing is in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. We do know, however, that we immediately go into God's presence when we die. Job eventually answers his own question in Job 19.25. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh in a sense, in a real body, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What a beautiful description of his resurrection faith. Well, applications, because we're eternal, every soul is valuable to God. God desires everyone to spend eternity with him, and this means we should redouble our efforts to share the good news. God doesn't want any person to go into eternity without a relationship with him. We also grieve differently because of Christ. Aristides, a first century Greek writer reflecting on the difference between the way Christians grieved and the death of the loved one with the rest of the world, wrote this, If any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice 
and offer thanks to God, and they escort his body with songs and thanksgivings, as if he is sending out from one place to another nearby. He couldn't understand their joy. And the same is true for us. Yes, the pain of loss is just as intense, but we have a sure and certain hope in Christ, a hope that will, in that grand heavenly reunion, a hope that through the person, though that the person is gone from us, they are somewhere safe with Christ. So as Christians, we see death differently. We grieve, but with hope. And that also means we should walk with Christ right now. Paul concludes the section by admonishing his readers to give yourselves fully to him. Now, now that you know what the end will be, now that you have a confidence for all eternity, give yourself fully to Jesus now. Often people say Christ will meet us there. True, but it's a little misleading. Grant Jeffrey writes, He walks with us on this side of the curtain and then guides us through the opening. We will meet him there because we have met him here. It's so important. He walks with us on this side of the curtain and he'll walk with us through the curtain. So we meet him now. It makes a difference now and makes a difference when we take that journey. You may remember the story of David Bloom, the 39-year-old reporter for NBC who was embedded with American troops in Iraq. From the camp quarters of his retrofitted tank, the, the Boom Mobile, he transmitted reports from the desert. Well, he developed a pain in his leg and he waved off advice from the doctor to seek medical attention. And he eventually died from developing a blood clot in his leg, which caused a pulmonary embolism. In his final email to his wife from the battlefield in Iraq, it was read at the, his funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. It went this way. Here I am, supposedly at the peak of professional success, and I could frankly care less. Yes, I'm proud of the good job we've all been doing, but in the scheme of things, it matters little compared to my relationship with you, the girls, and Jesus. He told his wife, Melanie, to save the note, and if in the future, when the moment comes in my life when you're talking about my last days, she and their three daughters should know this. He gave every ounce of his being for those whom he cared about most, for not for himself, but for God and his family. Our view of eternity should affect how we live right now. Eternal life begins right now as you embrace Jesus and as he embraces you, as you live with him and for him right now. My previous congregation in New Jersey was surrounded by a cemetery that went back into the mid-1700s, and often when I needed a break, I would take a, take a, just take a stroll through the cemetery. The graves and the gravestones and the urns and the memorial wall all reminded me that we are surrounded by mortality. We were reminded of all those who have taken the journey through death already. And as we finish today, maybe you should consider taking a moment to walk through a cemetery. Are you prepared for the journey? No one knows when that will come, but it will come. You can be confident of your destination because Jesus Christ is your God. Have a good one.